This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to episode number 73 of the Best Friends Podcast. Today is July 22nd. My name is John Dunn, and I hope you're having the best summer ever. But if what I'm seeing online is any indication, there's a good chance that you are overwhelmed with the needs that are out there right now. I think we'll have to do an episode soon on the numbers that we're seeing so far in 2021. But the basic gist of it is this. Intake is still down when you compare to the last quote-unquote normal year of 2019, but what seems to be the concern is outcomes. Across the country, on the whole, adoptions are down. Why is that? I don't know. I'm sure we could all come up with a hypothesis, but I know minds much smarter than mine are working on figuring out all the answers to those questions. But putting that aside, we still need to save the animals that need our help today, right? If you attended the recent Best Friends National Conference, then you know it was great. You will also know that it was pretty much impossible to take it all in in those two days. So many sessions, so many topics, incredible speakers. Well, here on the podcast, we are going to share some of that amazing content because it's just too damn good not to. And so much of it is helpful and relevant to you in the work you are doing right now. 2020, as we all know, was a weird year. It was tough. But there were those silver linings we always talk about, the opportunities we were given to innovate and implement new programs. So while nothing will be the same as it used to be, we are at least attempting to get back to the routines we had before. But that doesn't mean we should get back to all the same things we did before, the way we did them. If a new approach worked during the pandemic, maybe we should think about continuing to do it. At the conference's opening session, McKenna Yarbrough of Best Friends chatted with three different shelter leaders, Cassandra Heffington, Valerie Richardson, and Alexis Pugh. Sue Cosby from Best Friends also talked about the concept of community-supported sheltering and what Best Friends has been up to, shifting programs and focus to meet the needs of this new reality. And as I say, it's just too good not to share. Today, I have a great pleasure of introducing you to three shelter leaders who will share with you their stories and experiences from 2020. And because I'm a huge Bravo Housewives fan, I thought it would be kind of fun to have each of the panelists do a tagline for how they felt about the work they did in 2020. So we're gonna start with Cassie Heffington from Tulare County Animal Services in California. Hi, Cassie, how are you doing? I'm doing great, McKenna. Thanks great. for having me. So when we spoke, you told a really great story about how um, when you walked into the shelter for the very first time, it was in August of 2019. So I would love for you to share with everybody what you walked into and what your experiences were right away. Sure. So let me preface this by saying that I have a fantastic staff of individuals and that the administration before me came into a very grim situation and really primed the organization for change before I started. But that being said, what I walked into that first day was a staff that was drowning, drowning in animals, drowning in compassion fatigue, drowning in disease and all the things that happen when you try to house 200 animals in housing that's meant for less than a third of that. The shelter was routinely, routinely euthanized 
raising 20 to 30 animals daily, multiple times a week. And there was just no room for everyone that was coming in every day. But the part that really struck me was feral cats. I did not come from a shelter where we had open intake of community cats. And people would bring in truckloads, truck beds full of cats in traps. They would get put into small metal cages in the euthanasia room, stacked on top of each other. The cats would pile on top of each other. They'd have babies in cages with cats they didn't know and basically just wait there to die. So fortunately, we had Sheila and Destiny visiting from Best Friends. And I stood in that euthanasia room holding a dying kitten and just crying. I didn't I didn't know what to do. And like a story that many other shelters probably have, best friends came in and saved the day. They got us the resources we needed to do a return to field program for community cats. We got started right away. And there was a lot of fear around starting that program, but it turned out better than we could have ever hoped. And we, I don't think that we've euthanized a healthy, treatable cat since that day. And our save rate is currently at about 93%. That's great. Okay, so this kind of flows into my next question and really about your tagline. I love your tagline. And you really have developed a culture of figuring it out, right? If there's a problem, we're going to figure it out. So talk to me or share some stories on some things that you had to help the staff figure out and lessons you might have learned. So one of my favorite things to ask is, what are we really afraid of? And really looking for the answer so that we can dive in and go down those rabbit holes, figure it out, and then get to work. Actually, I learned that from you, McKenna. I heard you talk at a Best Friends conference years ago, and it really stuck with me throughout my entire career to this point. That really means a lot so to my me. Journey, <laughs> my journey here at Tulare County has been one challenge after another, and I'm sure that's something that every shelter has experienced over the last year or so. But we learned that we could use those challenges as opportunities to kind of shift and push the envelope just a little bit further toward our goals by using the momentum of what might be a tragedy and pushing it forward. For example, there was a lot of fear around our return to field program for community cats. Were we going to be inundated by angry people? Were we going to get reported to the board of supervisors? And we worked through those fears with our staff members, worked through those fears with our administration, which was a little bit more difficult. And we started the pilot program and it worked out better than we ever could have hoped. We had virtually no kickback from the community. I also had a situation in which about a month after I started, we had a shelter-wide outbreak of canine distemper, which could have been a total tragedy. But we kind of used that momentum of a tragedy to solidify our partnerships with some great organizations, save lives, and implement some new disease protocols, but also push the envelope just a little bit further toward managed intake and implement a waiting period for owner surrenders. And then COVID hit. And like all other shelters, we found ourselves in a position where we had to push the envelope all the way towards managed intake and implement what ended up being a year-long pilot program for full-fledged managed intake, which led us to a situation where I always told my staff that you can't fix the dam when the reservoir is full of water. So implementing that managed intake allowed us to reduce the population and reduce disease, increase uh, live release, increase staff morale, and increase time for really important things like enrichment and playgroups and fear-free training that we didn't think we were going to get to for a year, years to come. That's incredible. So uh, of all the programs you have implemented during COVID, what are you keeping all of them? Or are you changing anything? Like what's next for you guys? 
we're keeping all of them. <laughs> so COVID allowed us the, COVID allowed us the excuse we needed to really look at our policies and procedures and break down the challenges that we had into manageable pieces, reduce some of the barriers that we had as far as barriers we put up for live outcomes for reclaims and for adoptions, implement open adoption policies, and not keeping people's dogs over money, doing payment plans and meeting people where they are in the field. We fixed our field services program so that it was more community oriented. And honestly, I plan to hold on to all of these changes post COVID and we'll really start putting them to the test now that we get to see what normal looks like these days. That's amazing. And I have to share with everyone else out there, when you ended in 2019, we have your save rate calculated at 64%. And after you implemented all those changes, we have you at around 87.3%. So congratulations, you've done some great work. You have an amazing team, there's no question. So next up is Valerie Robinson, and she is with Terrebonne Parish Animal Shelter in Louisiana. Together, we make it better. Hi, Valerie. How are you doing? Hi, McKenna. So your tagline, I love it. Go ahead and share why you, you use that as your tagline. So Together We Make It Better was something that we used, um, kind of stole it from a local rescue organization. We worked together uh, with something that we used on Facebook and social media. Um, and it meant something, but nothing compared to what it means today after 2020. And so working together really does make it better. Uh, our community came forward like, uh, you know, champions that they are and helped us out for the COVID, uh, throughout the COVID process of fostering and adopting animals like never before. So really together, we make it better. That's great. And so that kind of goes into my next question beautifully. What happened literally, I want to say probably a week or two before COVID shut down everything for you guys? So the week before COVID, uh, the quarantine started, we were hosting our friends from the Million Cat Challenge group and the University of Florida's Shelter Medicine Program. They were with us all week long. We had a blast. We uh, learned so much from them um, and they gave us so many tools to use for uh, the rest of our lives really. And when they visited us, as we sent them away on the airplane, uh, we then COVID happened. So they gave us a lot of tools to use. And then COVID really kind of slowed us down to say, OK, now we can figure out how to use those great tools um, without trying to you know, use those and implement those when we were in the middle of uh, a normal, uh, if you will, year with you know, being flooded with cats and dogs. Yeah, so talk about that. I'd love for people to know, like, how did COVID actually help you and your staff and your shelter operations in regards to the shutdown? So in the beginning, things were insane. We had this mountain of work to do. We had ordinances to change. We had SOPs to write. Uh, again, the Million Cat Challenge team uh, gave us so many tools. Uh, we had so much to do. Citizen education. We had so many more uh, operational, major operational changes to make. And so we were trying to navigate through that while uh, we were navigating response to a world pandemic. And what do we do from here? And so one of the biggest things that we did was we stopped and paused and said, you know, COVID's going to allow us to uh, really dive deep and, and 
tackle these, you know, major operational changes. So COVID really stopped kind of everything for us and allowed us to do so much more um, because it gave us the, t- the quiet time, the time to, you know, sit at our desk and write, you know, SO- SOPs and, you know, do some operational training. My team, I'm so proud. They did over 400 hours of training while we were going through the quarantine process. They, you know, really got online and, and did um, fear-free training and really, you know, tried to implement those changes before we went back into whatever normal looks like. That's great. What a great use of time with the training. That's the first I've heard of that. So that's great. So what was one of your aha moments for 2020? Do you have one? I have several. The (laughs) one that sticks to me the most is when our friends at Marion Cat Challenge told me that one of the biggest things that they saw was that people in the animal welfare environment would not ask enough. So one of the things they said was, when you don't ask, you have a 0% chance of getting help from your community. And it dawned on me one day that they're right. We weren't asking for our community's help. We were just trying to do it all, our, all of, on our own. And so that really wasn't working well. And the moment we started to ask for fosters, heavily ask, we started to ask for foster to find her because we really needed to reduce our hours in the shelter. We started to ask our community. It really did make sense. It made sense that we weren't asking and therefore we were never going to get the help because we weren't asking. We weren't telling our community. And so today we ask for everything. We ask for everything. So the aha moment was definitely when we said, you know, if we don't ask, we won't get. I love that. If you don't ask, you won't get it. I think a lot of organizations can learn from that. And so finally, with everything that's, we're, we're obviously opening back up. And so I'm curious what's new or what's coming up for you guys in 2021? What's your thoughts and plans? So our big goal for 2021 is a behavior, dog behavior program. One of the things that I've still to this day have to pinch myself a little bit because I never would have thought um, that I would be developing uh, SOPs and a training program for my staff to help dogs that have behavioral issues. We would have never been in a position to do this. And so 2021 is going to bring about some changes because now we do have space in our shelter where we would have, again, never had before. We have space in our shelter to hold dogs that have some minor to moderate behavior issues and to how to help them get to the adoption floor. And so right now we are diving really deep and with the help of our friends um, in multiple places throughout the country to kind of develop a program where dog behavior um, can really be focused on to help those percentage of dogs that we really just kind of overlooked before because we didn't have the time or space to really help them. And so today we do because of those major operational changes. That's incredible. Thank you. What a great leader you are. I know you've been with that organization for a long time, and I think it's amazing how you've really brought your team through a major change. So congratulations. Good job. So like the leaders we've just heard from, COVID also created change for Best Friends Animal Society. So we are now focusing our life-saving centers on a more accelerated community approach. And so here to talk about our shift and how we are defining community-supported sheltering is Sue Cosby, the Senior Director of Life-Saving Centers. All right, so now you've heard about this idea of community-supported sheltering several times. And you may be asking yourself, what does that even mean? Well, let me take you back to the early days of animal welfare. Citizens, 
ordinary people with just enough wealth to allow them the luxury to pause in their day-to-day -day work and dedicate time to philanthropy and social causes, decided we should create a better world for animals. Whether they were carriage horses or dogs or cats, they knew these animals deserved better. Over time, animal sheltering became a field unto itself and not just a passion for the wealthy. Organizations like humane societies and SPCAs and other animal welfare groups sprung up across the country and many grew to be the prominent institutions in their cities or states that we know today. Together, they were fighting for the well-being of animals. But that fight was hard, and in fighting that good fight, they set their sights on a foe. By the 60s and 70s, articles appeared in magazines like Time, Esquire, and even Mad Magazine about the plight of homeless animals being killed in our shelters. Irresponsible, callous, and uncaring pet owners were implicated as the reason animal shelters needed to kill animals. Let me be clear, there were no easy answers when the number of animals entering shelters was estimated at tens of millions and our human population was a third less than it is today. And there are people in the world who are irresponsible, callous, and uncaring. But the narrative of the uncaring public neglected to note that the passion and love of these early animal welfare pioneers had for animals was not unique to them. In fact, because so many of them cared so deeply about animals that love and passion was the fuel that started this national movement that we're a part of right now. Previously, I had the honor of serving as the executive director of an amazing organization in New Jersey, the Animal Welfare Association. That incredible shelter was founded in 1948 by four women who wanted to create a better world for animals. In the early years, volunteers housed stray pets in their homes and published their home phone numbers in the local newspaper to help reunite lost pets. Their very first employee was someone who could answer a central phone number so they could be more efficient in reuniting those pets. Those women and those who came after them were amazing, growing their organization to one that still serves their community today. But they weren't that unique. In fact, they were just like you and me. Through whatever circumstances allowed them to have the freedom to put their passion to work, like us, they went for it. They did change the world for animals in their community. They opened an animal shelter in 1966. They advocated for better conditions at animal control. They testified on behalf of progressive legislation. And in 1974, they opened the region's very first low-cost spay and neuter clinic. 1974. Across the country, every single one of those SPCAs and humane societies that we think of as institutional bastions in our community have that passion of individual community members at the foundation of their organization. But what happened when we were fighting against that perceived uncaring public? We limited access to our work. We took that passion for animals and closed the doors to outsiders. We created adoption processes designed to screen people. We instituted home checks, reference checks, lengthy applications, never mind the limited opportunities to volunteer or foster or a process that requires you to complete applications, attend orientations and special trainings just to walk a dog or foster a kitten in your home. 
And don't get me started on punitive laws like ones that criminalize the compassionate person who dares to feed a hungry neighborhood cat. We hid animal statistics from our communities, not in shame, but because we declared the public doesn't understand why we have to kill animals, so we won't tell them. I was actually at a conference very much like this one years ago, and a speaker said that very phrase from the stage, we don't share our statistics because the public doesn't understand. To that, I would say the public wants to know because the public cares and the public can help. Over the past 30 years, animal sheltering has made tremendous strides in evolving away from this negative bias. Starting with the San Francisco SPCA in the late 1980s, shelters began to welcome the public into their life-saving efforts through marketing and adoption events, inviting advocacy and the sharing of community animal data. That evolution continued so that many organizations like yours now have amazing public support and collaborative partnerships. So what is community-supported sheltering? Community-supported sheltering is the next step. It inspires and empowers the public to be involved with and support all aspects of animal welfare within the community at the highest level of engagement possible. In practice, it's the intersection between animal shelters, the community, and governments to mutually support and leverage each other's resources to protect and serve the most vulnerable pets and their people in a community. Within this supportive environment, the public engages with animal welfare with a sense of ownership and responsibility. Public policy respects and values the public. And interagency public-private collaborations maximize a community's resources. Shelters and rescues implement robust foster care programs, temporarily housing pets in foster homes as the norm rather than the exception expanded volunteer opportunities, and volunteers utilized at every level of animal welfare, even participating in activities traditionally reserved for paid staff. I'm sure you can think of many roles in your organization where you're certain you need a staff person to do this, but maybe you don't. So how has Best Friends embarked on this path of community-supported sheltering? You may not be aware that Best Friends operates life-saving programs in several cities across the country. In addition to the iconic sanctuary in Southern Utah, we have facilities in New York, Atlanta, Houston, Northwest Arkansas, Salt Lake City, and Los Angeles. Just a year and a half ago, you may have walked into any one of those life-saving centers and seen what looks pretty much like a typical shelter setup. There were kennels and cages, some free-roaming rooms for cats, and even several kitten nurseries. But we all have a big goal to get to a no-kill 2025. So we knew we had to think differently. And it started by thinking about what life-saving would be like if we could work beyond our buildings, in and with the community like never before. Little did we know in 2019, as we planned a different way of operating by March 2020, COVID was gonna force us to learn how to do it faster than we ever expected. Where we had planned for our kitten nurseries to switch to foster-based care, we were challenged to move nearly all of our operations to foster-based care. Like it was for many of you, it was scary and exciting, but I'd like to tell you about three visionary projects that are underway right now. The first was implementing a text-based rapid response foster care program for neonatal kittens. 
This was piloted in our Salt Lake City program that originally had an entire kitten nursery building providing 24-hour care. The biggest challenge with the kitten nursery is that it would fill up and we would have to say no to our animal control partners who counted on us to partner with them to save kittens. Many of you know how that feels. It tears at your heart to say no to kittens. You know you can save. So the team decided the objective they wanted to achieve was to never say no to kittens in need from our animal control partners. I'm excited to report that this team has converted to a foster-based model using that text-based rapid response system. Foster parents sign up to receive text alerts the moment kittens arrive and using an interactive texting platform, staff and volunteers connect and communicate seamlessly. This pilot program is so successful, we're rolling it out to all of our centers and expanding it to all species. Whether we need someone to bottle feed just for a night, or we need to locate a long-term foster, or we need someone to be that long-term kitten raiser, we connect the community to animals faster than ever before. Bottle babies go into foster homes same day, and kittens, four to eight weeks, are placed in foster care within 48 hours. Earlier this year, the Salt Lake City team closed down their kitten nursery building and shifted all of their operations to a foster support model. Last year, by this time, they had to turn away 164 kittens on the days the nursery was full. This year, they have not had to turn away a single kitten. They have saved more than 1,500 kittens from our animal control partners since January without having to turn a single one away. Next, I wanna tell you about another foster care program. We were thinking, how do we get to that 2025 goal? If we have buildings in cities, how do we help beyond the reach of our buildings? Now, prior to this, like many of you, we saw transport as the answer. Let's bring the animals over there to our building over here. But what if we had no building? Well, then we actually have no limitations. And this is how our satellite foster programs were conceived. Satellite foster programs are partnerships with animal control shelters where we set up a best friends foster care program right in the city where our partners are located. The very first satellite foster care program was set up in Polk County, Florida. Now, if you don't remember the list of locations I gave you earlier, I will remind you that Polk County, Florida is not one of them. It's actually a good eight hour drive away from our closest life-saving program location in Atlanta, Georgia. I've really gotten to give kudos to our East Coast teams that took on this challenge. When we gave them the concept to create a foster program where we don't even have a building, we didn't have a playbook and we didn't know if it would succeed. They really had to figure it out and it's been amazing. After our Polk County pilot location launched in February, two more have been launched since then for a total of three with two others ready to go. Right now, 160 cats and kittens are in foster care, and the program has helped nearly 350 cats so far this year. These programs are staff-supported, but volunteer-run, with volunteer fosters, foster mentors, and adoption support, all facilitated with technology. Each of these programs is a true public-private collaboration because ultimately we want to hand off a fully grown, successful foster program to the shelter so they can continue to save lives and we can help even more locations as we race to 2025. Last but not least, by any means, we just broke ground on a new facility in Northwest Arkansas. 
I mentioned how we were thinking about breaking free from the limitations imposed by our buildings and how COVID accelerated that idea and showed us what was possible by working in and with the community. But in Arkansas, we're building it from the ground up. Unlike what many of us think of when we think animal shelter, this facility is not being built around rooms of cages and kennels. Instead, it's being built with the community and volunteers at its heart. Designed with a volunteer makerspace in the center of the campus, it's a place where visitors, volunteers, and clients will feel valued and respected, whether they're donating their time or whether they need a helping hand. And it's a collaborative space where we're partnering with nonprofits and municipal organizations to provide pet support services and life-saving programs, saving lives throughout all of Arkansas. As has happened in nearly all of our locations, the animals in our program will live in foster homes, curled up on a couch instead of a kennel. Because even the prettiest kennel can't beat a couch. Community-supported sheltering is a natural progression for shelters and communities. Over the past 150 years, shelters have evolved from viewing the public with suspicion and killing millions of dogs and cats to embracing community support and saving more lives. The next evolution is for those pets to be saved, not just in a brick and mortar building, but within the community itself as a true collaboration between shelters, governments, and their communities. I hope you come away from this conference inspired to embrace community-supported sheltering and take your life-saving to the next level, finding new ways to trust and inspiring that next generation of animal welfare pioneers. Now, let's get back to McKenna with one more guest. So our final panelist is someone I consider a friend, and her name is Alexis Pugh with Memphis Animal Services. My favorite question is, does this pet really need to come into the shelter? Hi, Alexis, how are you? Hi, friend McKenna, how are you? Good, so we just heard Sue define community-supported sheltering. So I would love to know what that means to you all there in Memphis. And um, so if you could talk about how you've used those programs yourself. Yeah, so community-supported sheltering goes right back to that tagline, does this pet actually need to come to the shelter? And it's really about looking at pets as individuals. Does this pet have medical needs? Well, maybe it does need to come see us. Does this pet have behavioral needs? Then maybe it needs to come to us. But a healthy, friendly puppy does not need the services of Memphis Animal Services. It needs to be in a home on a couch, like Sue said, and let us provide all the, the resources, the supplies. You give it that couch. And so it's, it's changing the model where everything comes to the shelter and it's being more specific and less one size fits all. So explain to me why you all started it. Like what was the main reason that you decided to go this route? So certainly portions of community supported sheltering um, and managed intake, you know, started years ago, back when we had Target Zero come in and consult with us. Um, but of course, like everyone else is going to speak to in this conference, COVID whew, changed everything, right? And so not being able to um, have animals filling all our kennels here due to having to keep staff separated and safe, not being able to have the public come in the building at the same rate we used to, uh, it forced us to say, we still have all these pets out here that need our help. What are we going to do when the answer is no longer 
pop them in a kennel. And so as we started adding programming and adding programming from a pet food pantry and beyond, we started looking at, wow, this really parallels some other really cool programs that we've done here in the city of Memphis in regards to our fire department ambulance service. And I know this is going to sound crazy, but you and I talked about this a little bit. So our fire department runs our EMS service and they were finding themselves out of ambulances all the time. And it was because every acuity of, of case was being handled in the exact same way. You call, we haul. So you might have a splinter in your finger or you might be having a heart attack, but an ambulance showed up at your door. So our fire department started a new program called Radar, where if it's a lower acuity case, it's triaged at the call time, and then a nurse practitioner goes in an SUV to the home, provides on-site care, and a referral to a non-emergency provider. Well, you can imagine how helpful this was through COVID when ambulances were already stretched thin, And so I said, let's take that exact model and apply it to animal welfare. Why do I have to send an animal control officer to someone's home for a pet that they just want to rehome or, you know, might be considering it, or maybe they just need some help. I don't need an officer with an animal control vehicle and their badge and all of that. I can have someone specially equipped to provide resources, help them instead. And so our pet resource center was born using necessity of COVID and using this great idea from our peer fire department. I love that. So one of the things we also talked about was wishing you could go back to change some of the things that you did in regards to, I'll let you share. I don't want to take your thunder away. Well, no, look, anytime we act like we are perfect is when we're losing the battle, right? right? And so we go back and we look and say, we were building a ship in a hurricane, right? Like while we were trying to sail it. So I give ourselves some grace. Everyone, you should give yourselves grace as you worked through through these changes. But the one thing I would go back and do differently, and I, I don't even know how necessarily, but to be more clear with our communications to the public about how This is about value added, not taking away services. And I think a lot of people got confused because we went into those emergency intake modes. And so people interpreted community supported sheltering as meaning we're just gonna leave animals out there to fend for themselves. And it's now the community's responsibility uh, independently without any support, guidance or resources from us. And those messages got a little muddied. So I would just say to anyone who's looking at this, focus on the value added. Talk about how this is going to do more for these pets long term. It is going to be better for these pets, better for the people, better for the community. It's not about taking away a service. It's about adding a new service that is better suited to each individual situation. So I've asked the other panelists the same question. So I'm asking you the same question. So what was one of your aha moments for 2020? Yeah, so my big aha moment, so my husband and I actually went through um, the process to become human foster parents. Oh, uh, that's great. Yeah, so we haven't had a placement yet, but we went through all the training, many hours of training. And one thing that really stood out to me through that training was this emphasis placed by the trainers all the time on the goal is always reunification with the natural parents. Our goal is always to get the child back to its family, his or her family. And we're going to provide resources and training along the way to make that happen. And there's WIC and there's there's all kinds of programs that exist to help support that family. 
why when we have expected as an animal welfare community for years when we've sat in judgment saying why don't these people treat these pets like family why don't they treat them like their family well we haven't treated them like their family we've been quick to rip the rip the children the fur children away to say you're not good enough anymore and we're not going to help you along the way so my aha moment has been we have got to do more to mirror the process of keeping families together that happens in the human world if we really expect our communities to start treating their pets as parts of their family. I love that. And so what's coming up next for you guys in 2021? How are things going now? Yeah, so um, intake is climbing, and I know I'm hearing that at, from shelters all around the country when I'm on national calls. Yeah. Intake is climbing, intake is climbing. But the key is, and like some of, of your other guests said, keeping these programs is the difference maker because as intake climbs, these programs are helping just enough. And so if we could, I, I want to show a quick slide that I think really hits on this data point really well. And what it does is if you can, if you can see on these lines, I know it's not super easy to see. In 2019, from January to May, we took in 4,383 pets, okay? Then if you look at the black line, that's 2021. January to May, 3,274 pets, so a lot less. But look at that number in the bottom right corner, 1,412 pets served through our pet resource center that never stepped foot in the shelter. Well, guess what? Add those two numbers together, our 2021 intake year to date and pet served year to date, that's 4,686, 7% more than we helped in 2019. And guess what? It's been just enough of a difference that we don't have to euthanize for space anymore. And so tell everyone what March 12th meant to you in 2020. March 12, 2020, last day, I signed a euthanasia card for space, last time. And, and I have made a commitment to this team that I will fight every day and I will continue to attend conferences like this and listen to the experts around the country and implement programs if it means we never go back to that again. Memphis Animal Services, we don't do that here anymore. And it's because of community-supported sheltering. The team behind the Best Friends podcast, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends podcast.